So in history, we have a very, we have a very important policy. A swallow does not make a summer. You cannot simply run with one piece of evidence and make a generalization. You need to first ask yourself whether this is a typical or anomalous uh, situation. So yeah, that's to me a basic rules of historical evidence. Hello and welcome to Catholic Parents Online, a YouTube and podcast channel where we share tips and resources on Catholic parenting. This is brought to you by the Theology of the Body Parenting Team of the Apostolate for Catholic Truth. Presented with the lens of the Theology of the Body, we will see how we can be sincere gifts of ourselves to our kids in ways that will help them find true happiness and flourish in accordance with God's wonderful plan for each and every one of them. My name is John Hui, and I'm your host for this podcast. The Church is often accused of being anti-science and that faith is not compatible with science. And one of the commonest examples given to assert this point is that of Galileo Galilei. It has been said that the church gave him a hard time because his proposal that the earth rotates around the sun was against biblical teaching. Was that the case? Was the church or is the church against science? Or was there something more to the saga? To shed more light on this topic, we have Mr. Nick Tree. Nick is an educator by profession. In addition, he holds a master's in theology from the Pontifical John Paul II Institute for Marriage and Family in Melbourne. Welcome to Catholic Parents Online, Nick. Thank you, John, for having me, and I'm grateful to be here. I guess you can say that I'm also right now a Catholic parent. A three-month-old uh, yes. uh, daughter. Yes, would yeah. like to share with us because I, I think there was a very uh, uh, happy event that uh, took place not too long ago. Yes, uh, so I'm grateful for uh, having my three-month-old daughter and uh, yeah, and I hope to also be a good Catholic father to her. Congratulations. And, uh, this, to- this topic is also close to my heart because uh, yes, I'm a Catholic educator but I'm a Catholic history educator. And uh, this is, of course, a historical episode and uh, it's something which uh, it's worth talking about. Yes, which is why we got you into this top podcast for this topic. Right. Thank you. Very good. So we're very happy that you have joined the ranks of Catholic parents, Nick. Yeah, and so congrats again welcome. to you and your wife. May God be praised. Yes, forever. So let's uh, begin um, with a little bit of uh, who Galileo Galilei was, Nick. Would you like to shed some light on that? That seems to be the commonly held assumption, isn't it, that many people have, that the church was anti-science? Yes, uh, that, that's actually um, quite... Uh, I, I'm a troll, uh, usually. So when people mention Galileo is an example of the church being anti-science, uh, that the church persecuted all the scientists. So I will say, name two scientists. Usually cannot... Uh, 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 okay. Yeah, at most, they may say, oh, Giordano Bruno, those who know. They would say, Giordano Bruno was not a scientist. But in any case, the whole point is this. Uh, when usually, my response, uh, name two. Usually cannot name one. Because you realize, if I cannot name, what does that mean? So in history, we have a very, we have a very important policy. A swallow does not make a summer. So to say, you no. Know? One swallow does not a summer make. In other words, you may have one example of uh, apparently a scientist being persecuted for his scientific views by, in this case, the Catholic Church. Okay, 
just take for the sake of argument that that is the case, there is a secondary question to ask. Is this typical or atypical of the church's attitude towards scientists in general? Because you cannot simply run with one piece of evidence and make a generalization. You need to first ask yourself whether this is a typical or anomalous uh, situation. Well, yeah, that's to me a basic rules of historical evidence. Right. So what was it that he proposed that was quite controversial at the time and appeared to get him into trouble? In terms of his uh, scientific achievements, uh, he proposed, he was not the first to propose, actually Copernicus, I mentioned earlier, was the first to propose around that time, it would be in Florence, uh, that the Earth, along with the other planets, revolved around the Sun. This is known as the heliocentric theory of uh, the universe. So uh, the Earth revolves around the Sun. And this challenged the pre-existing scientific paradigm all the way to Ptolemy and Aristotle, especially Ptolemy, that would be AD 65 or so, uh, first century, that no, the sun, uh, the earth is in the center of the universe and the planets and the sun revolves around it. So uh, his controversy, so to say, uh, started because he proposed an alternative uh, theory of the solar system. If, you, if it's just simply about a scientific theory, uh, you probably will wonder what the fuss is all about. So uh, that, that's, a, that's a fair question. But then, um, as scientists are one to do, he was a pioneering scientist. He attempted to challenge, uh, what do you call that, the pre-existing scientific paradigm. His uh, other scientists got upset and irritated with him. It went a lot of back and forth, back and forth, probably quite nasty, as uh, you know, intelligent people who have an ego are one to do. And some of them start accusing I think you are contradicting scripture. That would be pressing the nuclear button. <laughs> this was uh, Florence, Italy after the Reformation. Everybody was Catholic. So everybody will consider themselves, I'm a good Catholic. Sorry, I practice nepotism. I'm a good Catholic. Uh, I sleep around people. Why I'm a good Catholic. So everybody will say they are a good Catholic. Uh, I don't want to contradict scripture and so on. So when you argue with your friend, you just you know, argue as per normal, you're wrong, etc. But when you press the nuclear button, it's like, you're, you are wrong not because you are wrong, you are wrong because you are contradicting scripture. And that is the nuclear button. So his scientific colleagues, so to say, press the nuclear button and say, you are wrong because you contradict scripture. And they actually... Uh, instead of engaging in scientific arguments, they actually cited scripture to him. So, for example, I give you one example of uh, the scripture they would cite to him. They will say, for example, that Ecclesiastes 1, chapter 5, uh, cha uh, chapter 1, verse 5, the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place, it rises there again. Or Psalm 104, verse 5. The Lord set the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. So in other words, they, will, uh, they press the nuclear button. What you are saying is contrary to scripture. So therefore, you are on dangerous ground. You better back off. And uh, Galileo says, I'm a good Catholic. I don't want to contradict scripture. But I think your interpretation of scripture is wrong. Oh, 
Now you want to talk about scripture, right? Then we need to decide who can educate, adjudicate this response. Let's call in the inquisition. And then uh, things, you know, uh, one thing will lead to another. Because once you talk about scripture, uh, the church is involved and the church calls in the inquisition. So am I right to say that he actually initially got into trouble with his fellow scientists who held on to the prevailing view at that time that the sun revolved around the earth rather than the other way around, which we accept today. Yes, and correct. Because of that, they actually tried various ways and means to contradict him. And when they could not quite do so, they invoked the church to try to get him into trouble. Yes, uh, you can say that. Uh, Galileo also, uh, unfortunately, at that point in time, he is right as we see it today. But he was not, at that point in time, the proof he attempted to provide is actually not a very sound proof. We know it today. So he says, how do I know that the earth revolved around the sun? Look at the tides, T-I-D-E-S. There's high tide and there's low tide. There's high tide and there's low tide. Why did that happen? Because the earth is moving. That's why we have high tide and low tide. A scientist at the time says, don't joke with me. We have high tide and low tide because of the moon's gravitational pull. They know that, you know. Today, we say that those, those scientists were correct, you know. It's the moon's gravitational pull. So the proof which Galileo attempted to use was is actually an unsuccessful proof. So there's many of the scientists at the time were quite frustrated with Galileo. Why are you making such a claim when one of your proofs is actually not very sound? So that, that was actually, unfortunately, uh, Galileo's point of view. And then now, he steps into the purview of scripture as well. And hence, of course, uh, things become heated up. Mm, I see. So, as uh, this developed and he was, in a sense, referred to the church authorities, uh, he subse- subsequently got into trouble with the church authorities as well. And he had a very interesting relationship with the Pope and uh, Cardinal yes. Bermain. Would, would you like to uh, explain to us what actually happened in his relationship with the Pope and the subsequent trouble that he went into Sure. Actually, he got into uh, his first encounter with church authorities is actually with Cardinal Robert Bellarmine. That was in 1616. And Cardinal Robert Bellarmine told him, you can hold your theory as a hypothesis, but please do not teach it as true because uh, you your proof is not so solid. So that's one. And second, why should I reinterpret scripture with your, at this point in time, rather unsound scientific hypothesis? In the absence of further evidence, uh, I should not be reinterpreting scripture and the current uh, scientific consensus, the the geocentrism, where the earth is uh, in the middle and everything revolves around it, should be allowed to stand. But Galileo, you can hold it as a hypothesis. So uh, Galileo uh, reluctantly accepts this, but he says, no, it's not a hypothesis, it's truth. Robert Bellarmine tells him, then like that, I can't help you already. Then you don't say anything. So uh, Galileo says, okay, if I cannot teach it as true, I don't want to teach it as hypothesis, I will just keep quiet. So in 1616, he agrees to just keep quiet. And uh, that's about it. Lah. So that's with Cardinal Robert Bellarmine. And uh, subsequently, Cardinal Robert Bellarmine uh, will pass away and uh, the Pope will change in 1623. Cardinal Barberini becomes Pope Urban VIII and Galileo gets excited. Cardinal Barberini is my good friend. I always have, uh, you know, makan all this with him. 
And at that point in time, when Bellarmine asked me to keep quiet, Cardinal Barberini was saying, I actually, I know privately, that I don't really agree with it. It's okay to talk, man. It's okay to talk. So, so Galileo thought, okay, now the guy, my good friend now becomes Pope. Surely, he will let me publish whatever I want to publish. So that is the situation. And actually, it's quite interesting. So he will have uh, his uh, dinners with the Pope. That's a very prominent Catholic. Uh, they respect him for his scientific work because he invented the you must remember he invented the telescope. So uh, and then you know, and then he actually proved that the Earth's surface is not smooth. It is actually have craters. People didn't believe that. He said, "Don't believe. Look at my telescope and see." So he's a very famous guy. So he meets the Pope, and then they will discuss about you know among other topics they talk about was uh, about whether heliocentrism is right or geocentrism is right. The Pope didn't agree with him. The Pope says, no, I don't think Galileo, you are correct. But I'm an open-minded guy, so we can talk and discuss over dinner. And then it's okay, we agree to disagree. So that's the situation. So Galileo says, you're my good friend, the open-minded person. Can I uh, discuss these two books uh, together, these two worldviews together? So uh, Cardinal, uh, the, the Pope says, yeah, you can discuss both worldviews. You just want to summarize their arguments, right? Uh, he said, yeah, I just like to summarize. So because you don't mind people talking about it, right? He said, no, I don't mind people talking about it. The Pope will say, as long as you don't argue it as a fact, you can summarize what people are saying. No problem. So Galileo does that. He wrote his book, Dialogue Concerning the Two Chief World Systems in um, 1632. So it's supposed to be a dialogue between two people. And um, unfortunately, uh, the geocentric point of view, the old scientific hypothesis, which Galileo tries to uh, refute, the person who shares this, his name is Simplico. As you can imagine the name, simple-minded. And then all the arguments Simplico uses, the Pope reads the book, and he says, my gosh, didn't I use them when I'm talking to you during dinner? Now you write in the book. Are you trying to say I'm stupid? And now the Pope gets upset. <laughs> that, that, that is one of those uh, things. And then, of course, the Pope says, I'm an open-minded person. But when he sees this, Galileo didn't mention him. Huh? But then the arguments, the Pope reads, hey, how he know all this? This sounds like what I said to him in dinner time. He's trying to insult me. Is it? And then the Pope gets upset. There's a situation in about 1632, around there. And so is that why he was referred to the Inquisition? Yes, unfortunately. So the Pope says that, I told you you can summarize both views. I told you you shouldn't advocate for one. But then now you call the other view, the person called Simplico, and you use some of my arguments and you make it sound so stupid. You are not... Uh, simply summarizing both views, you are advocating for it. So yeah, he calls in the Inquisition. So the Inquisition says, oh my gosh, uh, no choice, we have to go and sort him out. So yeah, so the Inquisition comes in and uh, they tell Galileo, what are you up to? Galileo says, no, I did not uh, advocate any, anything. What? Inquisition reads the text and says, uh, I find that hard to believe. In 1616, you agree to Cardinal Robert Bellarmine not to advocate as true, but hold it as hypothesis you don't want. And now this book, 
it really sounds like you are advocating one point of view. So uh, in the end, the Inquisition says, okay, Galileo says, oh, no, I never. The Inquisition, you better tell me the truth. Inquisition did say, if not, we have our usual ways of interrogation that may include torture. Galileo said, yeah, yeah, sure. I will tell you the truth. I will cooperate. The Inquisition eventually tells uh, Galileo, his charge is very quite interesting. You are vehemently suspected of heresy. They're very precise, you know. They never say, you are a heretic. Because can't prove it. And, uh, yeah, I, I, you, may, you can say, you know, like, you write one particular point of view in such a foolish way and the other one in such a brilliant way. People vehemently suspect that you believe one view and not the other, right? But if you were to tell the person, no, I just happened to write it in this way, you can't actually prove it. You know? So and the Inquisition so said, okay, we will charge you for vehement suspicion of heresy. We can't say that you are a heretic because uh, can't prove your intention. But from the way you're writing, we are bloody suspicious. So that is actually uh, how the Inquisition charged him for. So seven out of 10 of the cardinals voted to charge Galileo. And um, his punishment was a uh, house arrest in his beautiful Florence villa and uh, to recite uh, the penitential sums once a week. So uh, poor guy, house arrest in his uh, Florence villa, uh, was allowed to do publish his scientific works, etc. But house arrest, uh, that was his punishment. And, uh, since you yeah, since you brought up this uh, topic of the um, Inquisition, yes, many people would have a very interesting, possibly yes. unreal uh, impressions of the Inquisition. Sure. And since you brought it up, it might be a good uh, time at this point in time to ask you, what was the Inquisition about? There were there are many people who think that there was the uh, church's way of uh, suppressing dissenters, and like you mentioned just now, things using um even methods like torture and all that to get uh information is not something we sure. would uh, approve of and certainly something the church wouldn't approve of today but apparently it was yes. practiced at that time so yes you uh, share with us a little bit more of this sure uh if you of course watch monty python sketches uh is it nobody expects the spanish inquisition so that's the tagline and then of course uh very unpleasant but actually the inquisition started off with a good intention every society even today would be concerned with what we call uh, toxic or dangerous slash extremist ideologies. Our government will take action and they will have people going in to try to rehabilitate those who have fallen prey to such ideas. So even today, certain ideas are beyond the pale action needs to be taken. So in the case of uh, Europe during the 17th century, what was beyond the pale, uh, today we'll say, no, that's quite normal, but what was beyond the pale at the time for Catholic Europe was uh, heresy. Heresy was not a private matter. It was practically equivalent by the secular authorities to treason. So in other words, the mindset was, if you are a good Italian, you are a good Catholic. If you, are, if you can't be a good Catholic, then I suspect your loyalty to, uh, to the to my country and so on so that's a problem so the uh, heresy has uh, what you call it a subversive dimension which at least at that point in time the the, uh, the secular authorities believe there is a need to suppress heresy so what does the church do we need to be clear on who is a heretic who is not 
you secular authorities are not competent to judge these things. You are not trained as a lawyer. You cannot go through uh, procedures like uh, trial by fire and so on. These are not proper legal procedures. We will send our inquisitors who are all trained in civil law and canon law and the basic rules of evidence to determine what is going on. So the inquisitors came from that point of view. We want to ensure that people have a fair trial, have justice, so that uh, they don't, don't just simply someone accuse me of heresy and that's it. My reputation ruined. Inquisitor will come and say, no, we'll look at the evidence and then we'll sort things out. So that's the Inquisition. And there were very, very interesting stories, actually. Um, some people considered the secular courts as so harsh, they said, can you please accuse me of heresy so that I can be tried by the Inquisition instead? Yeah, very interesting. So that because the Inquisitors tend to be a bit more lenient in their punishments. Uh. So, uh, but not to downplay the thing, so the Inquisitor will say, heresy is very serious. It's usually a capital offence. So if you per persist in it, if you recant your heresy, and, or if it's just minor thing or whatever, you don't really know what you're talking about, all this, we'll send you on a pilgrimage, give you psalms to recite, etc., and move on your life. But it's very serious. It's a potentially capital offence. The church convicts people of heresy or not, the state will take over from there. So uh, the church doesn't sentence people to death. The church courts are the Inquisition doesn't sentence people to death. Inquisition will only uh, say whether a person is guilty of heresy or not. So that's the Inquisition. Uh, with regards to torture, uh, unfortunately, at that point in time, 17th century Europe, uh, what we today will consider as torture, they probably will consider as uh, enhanced interrogation techniques. Yeah. So uh, things like, for example, uh, clapping the hands for 15 minutes, so you experience some physical pain. So the Inquisition had very specific rules. Uh, only can do for 15 minutes, no more than that. They must give people a drink of water and so on. I'm not saying these things are correct, but I'm just saying that these things were inherited from the time of the Romans. So to say, it just simply carried on uh, the sensitivity to human, uh, to human dignity could be better, but it was something which is simply carried over from uh, Roman times. Right. So it appears as though the Inquisition was actually started with a good intention to protect the integrity of uh, teachings and to make sure that uh, heresies would not be allowed to be disseminated to the population. Uh, yes, and, and also that innocent people are not accused of heresy and then simply you know, thrown into whatever. So it, when, when Inquisition, for example, one of the things, the Spanish Inquisition, for example, gets a very bad reputation. Oh, yes, it does. But actually, yes, correct. But actually, if you look at the historical record, uh, it does, it does, wherever the Spanish Inquisition went, people convicted of witchcraft, for example, at the time it was witch mania, uh, dropped very severely. Because the, the rules of evidence for the Spanish Inquisition were so high that most people were not convicted of witchcraft. So they know it's not a witch, it's not a witch, how can you anyhow accuse people of witch? So whenever the Spanish Inquisition goes, the number of witchcraft convictions you know, actually drop quite severely. Right. So, but I think that uh, there is some con um, concern, or you might say uh, some impressions that the individuals might have that the Inquisition brought about uh, some rather nasty consequences uh, for those who are held um, guilty 
and uh, especially with this uh, thing about burning at the stake, right? Yes. So I think it's good to clarify this and uh, allow listeners to have a clearer picture of what actually happened. Uh, burning at the stake was one of those punishments uh, which the secular authorities consider as the part of the repertoire of inflicting the death penalty. The idea, at least uh, in uh, Renaissance psychology, is that uh, we reserve burning a stake for uh, heretics because we are concerned for their souls. When the fire is lit up, you know that that's where you might end up, you know, if you persist in heresy, in hell, you know. So when the fire is lit up, etc., the priest will stand by somewhere nearby. If you start panicking and you shout out your confession, the priest can still absolve you. And then, okay, your body is burned, but then your soul is now safe. So in the mind, at least in the Renaissance mind, uh, the soul is more important than the body. We want you to go to heaven or at least spend time in purgatory, not in hell. So um, burning you at the stake uh, is in some sense uh, an act of mercy because it may frighten you. I mean, rightly or wrongly, I'm not saying they're right. I'm just saying the mindset. Uh, we, they may, it may frighten you into uh, recanting your heresy because you realize, oh, I, this might be my eternal fate. So you shout out your confession. Of course, to what extent is by panic or this kind of thing, they, they should know, like, they shouldn't do that. So uh, you, know, you shout out your confession, the priest can absolve you, and then uh, you can still make it to heaven. So, so burning at the stake, you know, must under, be understood in the historical context. Uh, today, we say that, uh, you know, in Secular culture, we say that that's just cruelty. We probably will say that, you know, but then. So there was a practice of that time, which certainly many of us will not agree with today, but it was in the sense something that was inherited um, down the centuries uh, to the culture of that time. Yes, and I think that's important to note as a history teacher, I always will say that uh, you need to judge people by the standards of that time. So uh, after all, they probably will judge you uh, right now based on our own standards and we may well be uh, lacking in some areas as well. So I think that that's important to know. Right. Well, thank you very much for clarifying these little uh, intricacies about the uh, Inquisition. No uh, so it appears, it appears that um, for Galileo, he got into trouble more because of personal issues with fellow scientists um, and ultimately the Pope that got him to trouble rather than outright uh, opposition from the church for his views. Yes, uh, you can say that the church made a mistake by interfering with uh, scientific hypotheses. So that's the, John Paul II apologized for two things. He apologized for um, treating Galileo as such because, uh, I mean, the Pope should not do that. Let's put it that way. If, uh, even if your pride is hurt, should not be calling in the Inquisition to sort someone out. That's not, not, not a good thing. So he apologized for that. And he also apologized for the church interfering in a scientific debate. It should be allowed to play out accordingly. Don't intervene too quickly on either side. Just let the evidence play out. So it's like, even though you may say, Galileo's evidence not so good. Right? So we intervene should be correct. No, lah. just let it play out. And then, uh, and then from there, things, uh, the truth should merge from there. Lah. That's right. So the Pope will stick to teaching faith and morals and uh, protecting and proclaiming it for the church. Yes, and science and will the, give it to the scientists. 
Yeah, we leave it to the scientists to sort out based on the internal rules of evidence and so on. And we see what happens after that. Right. So I think that would be a, perhaps a more helpful thing to do. Certainly. At this point in time then, do you think that this commonly held view that science contradicts faith uh, holds water? Can it be supported? Because there's science a commonly held view yes. that science contradicts yes. faith or yes. faith contradicts Correct. science, right? So Correct. what would you yes. like to um, talk about regards to that? I guess uh, we need to first clarify these two terms. What do we mean by faith and what do we mean by science? And this is indeed a pretty much widespread conception. Like for me as, a, as an educator, uh, I, I teach history. So I teach the rules of historical evidence, the rules of historical reasoning. I don't teach science, but I teach uh, history and I teach reasoning. So a number of my non-Christian students are quite intrigued. Uh, they will say, Mr. Tree, you are clearly a man of faith, but yet you teach in a logically rigorous manner. What's, this, uh, what's up? My answer to them is as follows. Faith is not believing without evidence. So that's very important to know. Faith, ultimately, if you want to ask me one word, what is faith? Faith is trust. So that's one. Second, I do not use the scientific method, but uh, I am reasoning. So in other words, science is one way of reasoning, but it is not the only way. So for example, the scientific method calls for experiment. So you can do A, you say that A is the hypothesis, you prove it by experiment, and the experiment can be repeated again. That is the scientific method in a nutshell. The historical method, the historical way of reasoning is not scientific, but it is still reasonable. Something has already happened. The atomic bomb can only be dropped once right, on Hiroshima. You can't repeat that again, so to say, right? It's a different event. We so if you not want repeat to, that again. Yeah, we must not repeat that. And uh, correct, no, it'd be absurd, right? So we say that, okay, uh, did the Soviet you are uh, wrong? Did Japan surrender because of the atomic bomb? You can assess the evidence, but you can't repeat it again. So your 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 way of reasoning is more like a lawyer. Like to assess evidence, look at the credibility of eyewitnesses and so on. So already we see that the category of reason is bigger than a the word science. Science is one way to reason, but it is not the only way to reason. So that's the first thing I like to tell people. The second thing is as follows. When I say faith, I mean trust. And when you ask people, what comes first? In everyday human relationships, does faith come first or reason comes first? If you were to take a mother-child relationship, or with my own daughter, you know, what comes first? She has to trust us. Subsequently, when she grows older, I tell her, don't touch the, uh, the, the hot boiling stove. Uh, yeah. hot stove. She has no science. She, in her reasoning is that, okay, daddy loves me, uh, I will listen to him. It is pre-scientific, but it is not irrational. Only later when she goes to school, she will learn about you know, uh, heat, she'll learn about everything else, and then from there, 
science, uh, he will learn the scientific method. So even in ordinary human relationships, which comes first, trust or uh, what do you call that? Or, uh, or reason. Trust comes first for reason. So uh, this misconception very often happens. Sometimes uh, fellow uh, believers have to own it. Reason is not faith's enemy. It's very important to witness to reason uh, as a Christian. And then from there, over time, misconceptions can, uh, can be dispelled. Though unfortunately, this misconception is very often widespread. And uh, sometimes Christians fumble uh, in their attempt to explain why this misconception is not the case. And actually, the best example, best way in my experience to, uh, to dispel this misconception is the Christian's personal uh, witness to being a rigorously reasonable person. Right. So faith and science are definitely not incompatible. Uh, they no. are just two different ways of pursuing the truth. And the absolute yes. truth himself is God, isn't it? Yes. So there are two different methods and two different ways of really finding God in the sense. And I think that uh, as a medical professional, I can say that um, I can share that with the years of uh, learning more, as I learn more about the human body, as I learn more about how the human body works and the wonders of nature, I can tell you the more I learn about this, the more I marvel at how God works in his creation. Yes. So uh, your example is a brilliant one because uh, when you look at the human body, you will see integrated complexity. Yes. So science shows you integrated complexity. Science is silent on uh, the reason for such an integrated complexity. To ask for the reason behind such integrated complexity is by definition not a scientific question, but a philosophical one. So already, so as long as science recognizes its uh, limits, I am operating scientifically, I can describe reality to you, but to ask a question, what is behind reality, if at all anything? Is it chance or design, etc.? That would be a philosophical question. So classifying questions accurately goes a long way in uh, clarifying misconceptions. Certainly. Thank you very much, Nick. Um, are there any other points you'd like to share with um, us before we end this uh, podcast in relation to faith and science and maybe even on the Galileo affair? And, and... Well, actually, uh, I, I would like to say that uh, this witness to, uh, to, the, to reason is actually one of the reasons, uh, pardon my pun, why Christianity rose uh, in the Western world. Because uh, actually, uh, this is from uh, Cardinal Ratzinger when he was Cardinal Pope Benedict XVI when he was the Cardinal. And he, he's, he, he makes the constant point that when Christianity showed up in the, in, in the world stage, it did not side with the religions of the day. It sided with the philosophers. And the philosophers were the one who insisted on reason. Christianity says that, of course, this is the Logos, but the Logos now has a human face, Jesus Christ. And we don't only insist on reason, we also insist on upright ethical behavior. So it is this package deal 
insistence on reason and insistence on loving your neighbor, which made Christianity credible in the Western world at that time and became a dominant force. So today, we should not separate uh, the two things. All that matters is your good behavior and then your brain uh, just uh, drop it off. If uh, Ratzinger is correct, and I believe he is, both are necessary. So uh, for me as a teacher, I'm very conscious that I must witness to be uh, witness as a reasonable teacher, as in teach my subject. In this case, I teach history in a rigorously historical manner. So that is one thing I will do, but also witness in terms of how I treat my students with uh, their dignity and so on. So it's these twin pillars which will make Christianity credible. Unfortunately, for in the case of Galileo, uh, one of the pillars was missing. La. It's called charity. La. And because charity was missing, um, the Pope of the day uh, thought that he knew everything and then he did what he did. La. So that was not good. La. And then there was certainly um, not a pleasant experience. And uh, when people read it in a, as a case study, uh, while it is not correct, uh, as a, if it's, it is not correct as a piece of historical evidence uh, that the church is against science. That's not, that's not correct. But uh, it, will, it is not morally correct for the Pope to do what he did to Galileo. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, over time, as we see so many things and read about so many other things, it always amazes me how despite the human weaknesses of us Christians, right, uh, from all the way down to us and all the way up to the popes uh, from past. Um, despite our human failings and weaknesses, the church has continued to proclaim faith and morals in a consistent, clear, concise, and correct manner. It is uh, such an amazing uh, situation for me that I can I cannot but really marvel at how God protects His church despite all our human yes. weaknesses. Uh, faith, morals, and also reason. Uh, I'd like to maybe recommend to your readers the following book. How the Catholic Church Built Western Civilization by historian Thomas E. Woods. So uh, instead of usually you talk, okay, faith and moral, that's one thing, certainly. But uh, this book actually argues that um, the church, uh, Western civilization owes the church everything. The university, science, architecture, international law, economics, morality, everything. So um, whatever you make of all his claims, um, it is also important to know, uh, you can say, the power of uh, this belief in faith, morals, and also this dedication to reason. So just like to maybe for your readers, right, uh, do consider reading this book. I certainly read it myself. And yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, uh, Nick. It's uh, been wonderful uh, talking welcome. to you and uh, getting you so for... well enlightened on these uh, various issues, uh, including Galileo, Inquisition, and so on, and the uh, relationship between faith and science and reason. We thank you very much for your insights, and uh, we look forward to seeing you again. And to all of our listeners out there, thank you very much for joining us. Till we meet again, take care, and God bless you and the family always. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>